up to the time of Lady Belfour, we, we, we had action, but it wasn't very personal. Uh, I was standing a watch. Now, standing a watch is a conditioned watch in which everybody serves four hours on and then they have eight hours off to do the seamanship duties you have or sleep. Now, playing poker was number one's uh, fun type thing that we did. Uh, at about seven o'clock in the morning on the 25th of October, 1944, we were set in a very, very peaceful existence guarding six aircraft carriers. They were used for shore bombardment, not for action against other ships. They're very slow, clumsy little ships. They served their, they served their purpose pretty well. But we were uh, protecting them. There were several destroyers and destroyer escorts. Uh, at about, and I said, getting close, you could smell the bacon frying. And about, at close to seven, some airplanes went flying over real close, low to the water. And we didn't know at first what they were. And they were our scout planes that had been sent out for the morning search. We didn't know what was going on. And then we saw anti-aircraft bursts in the air. And uh, then the word was passed, prepare to engage major portion of the Japanese fleet. And uh, before that speech was done, we had turned and were attacking the whole Japanese fleet single-handedly. Our captain was a very, very courageous, very dedicated, very, very competent uh, naval officer. He attacked the whole fleet all by himself, guns blazing just like in the movies, John Wayne movies, attacking the Indians. He was attacking the whole Japanese fleet. Welcome back, 1001 Heroes fans. Today's story, the incredible true story of the Battle of Samar in 1944, during which an extremely aggressive sea battle was fought by a small 13-ship U.S. task force called Taffy 3, which had been caught off guard by a much larger 23-ship Japanese attack fleet led by the largest and most powerful battleship in existence at that time, the heavily armored Japanese fleet ship Yamato a ship so large that it outweighed the combined total of the 13 American ships and had double the firing range. When attacked by surprise, Taffy 3's plan had suddenly become a defensive one, the objectives being to lay down smoke screens, retreat, and try to protect their light carriers as best they could. They were not an attack force and had no battleships. Technically, they were doomed to a slaughter their only option being to stall for time and hope their carrier planes could do some damage before their light carriers, the only place those planes could return to, were blown out of the water. 
the defining moment in the direction of this battle came near the beginning, when an American destroyer named the USS Johnston, which found itself positioned closest to the surprise attack of that vastly superior attacking Japanese fleet, bravely and unexpectedly turned and charged headlong toward the attacking Japanese ships and into harm's way. An act of courage which inspired the remainder of his task force and later others to follow the attack, which succeeded in stalling and confusing the Japanese high command and ultimately changing the course of history, forever cementing their names and deeds in the annals of U.S. World War II naval battles. If you have not heard the story of the USS Johnston and Taffy Three and the brave ships and planes that fought with them, you're about to, and I promise you that you will never forget it. Before we begin our story, please stand by for a few special announcements. I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a new show from one of my podcaster buddies named Noah Tesner, whose show, The History of the Vikings, I've been enjoying for the past year or so. He just launched a new podcast called Stories of the Second World War, and it's pretty good, so I wanted to let you know about it. I just checked out his latest interview with author Saul David about his new book, The Force, which covers a little-known action during the Italian campaign undertaken by a specially trained special ops unit called The Force, whose job it was to storm a German-held mountain fortress by scaling a sheer cliff in freezing conditions. The men were hand-picked for this mission, in top physical condition, and most were outdoorsmen who had lived in northern climates. Because this was winter in Italy, and this mountain blocked the Allies' progress toward Germany, and was going to be very tough to take down. Noah is an excellent interview host, and his guests are top-notch. Search Stories of the Second World War by Noah Tesner, and you won't be disappointed. Now, on with our show. A few weeks ago, we featured a two-part story called War Comes to the Philippines, which covered the Japanese attack upon and occupation of the Philippine Islands from 1941 through 1944. You will remember from this episode that the 100 or more American ships carrying 200,000 of our troops, which were there to liberate the Philippines after three years of occupation by the Japanese, were able to land at Leyte Gulf in the Philippines without a heavy bombardment occurring while those ships were docked. The Japanese wanted desperately to catch the Americans there while they were unloading men and materials, and they had a plan and the necessary force to do it, a plan which would have worked, but for the courage and tenacity of a small task force of American ships comprised of light carriers and destroyers called Task Unit 77.4.3, or simply Taffy 3. The deadly confrontation known as the Battle of Leyte Gulf, which is known as the largest naval battle in U.S. history, involved a great number of ships and carrier planes over a period of four days, those coming between October 23rd and October 26th of 1944. And there were so many courageous encounters that it would take three episodes to tell the entire story. That battle, the Battle of Leyte Gulf, marked the first Japanese kamikaze attacks on U.S. carriers, the sinking of the largest battleship ever built, and definitely the beginning of the end for the Japanese Navy. The 10,000-plus men who took part in these battles are all heroes, and it is to them that we dedicate this story. Our story today, called In Harm's Way, The Battle of Samar, 
tells the story of the centerpiece of the Battle of Leyte Gulf and showcases an incredible story of heroism under fire. The largely unknown David and Goliath story of Task Force 3's USS Johnson, DD-557, and her sister ships, the Hearman, the Samuel B. Roberts, and the Howell, and the bold actions the commander and crew of those destroyers and destroyer escorts took against overwhelming odds on October 25, 1944, is one of the greatest unsung feats of heroism in World War II, and one that should be remembered and honored by every person who respects the cost of freedom. The sacrifices of the Johnston and her escort carrier task unit Taffy Three in what is known as the Battle of Samar, which was an important part of the larger sea battle of Leyte Gulf, helped stop Vice Admiral Takeo Corita's center force of 23 ships from attacking vulnerable U.S. landing forces in the Philippines, not only enabling the liberation of the Philippine people, but causing confusion and disorientation among the ships of the attacking Japanese fleets, who became convinced that they were up against a much larger force than their own, and ultimately was responsible for huge losses suffered by the Japanese in the bigger picture, the four-day Battle of Leyte Gulf, which tipped the balance of sea power in the Allied favor forever and led the Japanese to employing desperate measures such as kamikaze attacks to regain their momentum, which they never did. Just this year, the wreck of the USS Johnston was found by the research vessel Petrel, which was the pride of the late co-owner of Microsoft, Paul Allen, who had purchased a subsea engineering vessel named the Seven Petrel in 2016, and then retrofitted it to become a deep submergence research vessel, the only one of its kind in the world, built and funded for the purpose of honoring the sacrifices of the men who fought in World War II. If ever a huge investment had a worthy purpose, it was this. The primary mission of the Petrel is to explore historically significant wrecks at challenging depths and conditions. No other research ship in the world is capable of finding wrecks 20,000 feet down, and the Petrel has had a number of successes in just the past two years including finding the USS Ward, the USS Lexington, which had been sunk in the Battle of the Coral Sea, the Juno, a light cruiser sunk after Guadalcanal, that ship having carried the five Sullivan brothers, who all went down with it, along with 682 other crewmen, the USS Wasp, the USS Hornet, and the USS Indianapolis, which you might remember was mentioned in the film Jaws, when Hooper and Chief Brody listened to Quint as he recalled being one of the few survivors that had survived the shark attacks after the Indianapolis was sunk by torpedoes. The research vessel Petrel has also located a number of Japanese ships that were sunk in war action in the Pacific as well. One precondition set by Allen was that all discovered wrecks be classified as war graves and their locations kept secret, known only to national governments and museums. On October 30th, 2019, it was announced that the Petrel discovered what is believed to be the deepest shipwreck ever located at 20,406 feet below the surface in the Philippine Trench, which is an underwater canyon located east of the Philippines. That trench runs about 19 miles from the center of the Philippine island of Luzon, southeast to the northern Maluku island of Halmahera in Indonesia. At its deepest point, the trench reaches 10,540 meters, or 
580 feet. The wreck is in pieces, with no significant hull sections visible. The wreck pieces discovered included destroyed 5-inch turrets, a propeller shaft and propeller, two funnels, a mast, a barbette, and unidentified piles of twisted hull, interior, or machinery debris. A track mark in the mud was found leading deeper into the trench, possibly suggesting that the main wreck slid deeper still after impacting onto the seabed. Because the ROV unit was already beyond its depth limits, the decision was made not to investigate further at that time. Looking at the wreckage, or what there is of it, courtesy of the underwater cameras mounted on a high-tech bathysphere belonging to the research vessel, Petrol, the wreckage appears under bright lights to be a gray-green void, with no fish apparently at this depth, no growing things to capture the attention, and barely any current moving across the bare sandy bottom. What is visible, and seemingly very out of place, are rusted-out steel parts that belonged to once was, they have proved, the American destroyer, the USS Johnston, DD-557. Very few people have ever heard of the USS Johnston. It wasn't a mighty carrier like the Yorktown or big battleship like the USS Pennsylvania. It was a lightweight in any fleet, a task force destroyer, its job being to support troop landings, to chase submarines, and most importantly, to protect aircraft carriers at all costs so that our Navy pilots had a deck from which to take off and land. Its 5-inch guns were good for shelling shore batteries. Its 10 torpedoes were lethal, and because it was small and lightweight compared to most other ships, it was also fast and nimble. It and other Fletcher-class thin-skinned destroyers were nicknamed Tin Cans because of their lack of thick armor. What made finding the USS Johnston a special feat was that it was and is a legend, and the names of the men who were on it will be honored as long as freedom remains an ideal. On October 25, 1944, the USS Johnston turned the tide of the Pacific War decidedly against the Japanese when its American commander, Ernest Evans, a Cherokee from Oklahoma, after being given a chance to run from a vastly superior opponent who was headed his way, and perhaps lived to fight another day, or charge into the face of hell, knowing that the best he could do was slow the enemy down a little, and perhaps buy some time for the other ships which he was sworn to protect. Turned. Turned and charged, head-on, alone, at first, into a fleet of twenty-two Japanese ships, one of which, the Yamoto, was the largest battleship in the world at that time. It was, without a doubt, one of the most courageous actions of World War II, and the defining moment that provided the John Paul Jones-style damn-the-torpedoes catalyst needed to turn the tide of battle against the Japanese. We'll return right after this short message from our sponsor. Johnston was laid down in May of 1942 by the Seattle-Tacoma Shipbuilding Corporation, Seattle, Washington. She was launched on the 25th of March, 1943, sponsored by Ms. Marie S. Klinger, great-niece of her namesake, and was commissioned on October 27, 1943, with Lieutenant Commander Ernest E. Evans in command. The day Johnston was commissioned, Commander Evans made a speech to the crew in which he said, This is going to be a fighting ship. I intend to go in harm's way, and anyone who doesn't want to go along had better get off right now. The USS Johnston stayed busy in the Pacific, 
chasing submarines and bombarding Japanese fortifications on Kwajalein, Inuitak, the Solomons, and Guam. At Guam, she stood side by side with the famed battleship Pennsylvania, softening up that Japanese-held island for invasion. The USS Pennsylvania was a World War I super-dreadnought battleship and one that was in dry dock at the time of Pearl Harbor and sandwiched between two destroyers. She was one of only two big ships that was able to get out of the harbor with only minor damage. She was fitted with new anti-aircraft guns before leaving, at the tender age of 27 years old, to fight like a lion in the Pacific where she was torpedoed, bombed, and still floating by war's end, after which she was used at Bimini for atomic bomb tests. Still floating, the old lady was finally towed to Kwajalein and scuttled. She should have been towed to Philadelphia Navy Yard and put on display. The USS Johnston was also able to avenge the sinking of the USS Corvina, the only U.S. submarine sunk by a Japanese submarine, by sinking that Japanese sub, I-176, with depth charges. Johnston next helped protect escort carriers providing air support for the invasion and capture of Peleliu. Soon it was October of 1944, and war was raging on land and sea all through the Pacific. Third Fleet Commander William Halsey was moving carrier strike forces and task forces throughout the waters surrounding the Philippines and Formosa, tightening the loop around the Japanese forces, getting closer and closer to mainland Japan and Saipan as Marines fought bitterly on outlying islands. Then, in preparation for a landing in the Philippines, Halsey ordered Task Force 28 to launch airstrikes against targets in the Philippines, hitting airfields around Manila and sinking eight ships in Manila Bay along with sending 12 Japanese vessels to the bottom off Luzon. 7th Fleet aircraft also sank 12 Japanese ships off Cebu. 7th Fleet Admiral Thomas Kincaid landed four Army divisions on Leyte, allowing General Douglas MacArthur to make, with film crew in tow, the beaches having been long secured, the snipers having been carefully weeded out from the trees, his long-awaited return to the Philippines. MacArthur would later receive the Medal of Honor for his actions in the Philippines. The Japanese air attacks launched from their land bases on the Philippines were savage, damaging the American escort carrier Sagamon, the light cruiser Honolulu, and a salvage vessel, while Japanese onshore guns damaged a destroyer and a tank landing ship. But with all this, there was still no Japanese battle fleet to deal with, and the invasion went forward. One reason for this? The heroics shown throughout the islands surrounding the Philippines as the American fleets played a deadly cat-and-mouse game with the Japanese, attacking at every opportunity they could create. This was the first stage of the Battle of Leyte Gulf, the largest and deadliest naval battle in history. It began when the submarine Darter, under the command of David McClintock, and working in unison with the sub Dace, spotted a large Japanese force headed toward Leyte and signaled that development immediately to command. The submarine Darter joined with Dace in torpedoing and sinking the Japanese heavy cruiser Atago, the flagship of Admiral Takio Kurita, a huge loss for the Japanese, and they also took out the heavy cruiser Maya. All this done by two submarines while being chased and depth-charged by Japanese destroyers. The darter also put some explosive lead in the heavy cruiser Takeo, 
damaging her so badly that she had to be escorted away by two destroyers. Never before had two submarines created so much mayhem and destruction on a Japanese fleet. The next day, the 24th of October, 1944, was a wild melee of fighting around the Philippines, as American carrier-based planes attacked Japanese surface ships and land-based Japanese planes based in the Philippines attacked the light carrier Princeton, which exploded just as the other ships came to her aid, damaging three destroyers and a light cruiser, the Birmingham, which alone lost 229 men killed and 426 wounded, before being scuttled. Meanwhile, American pilots concentrated on the heavy Japanese battleship Musashi, hitting it with 19 torpedoes and 17 bombs, sinking it, along with damaging two other battleships and destroyers, causing Admiral Corita to change course and look for another path toward the Philippines to stop the American invasion. That wild day also marked the first of the kamikaze attacks that signaled Japanese desperation as they began to see their plans for domination falling apart. The Americans, whom they believed to be a lesser race, and therefore a weaker race, were fighting like wild men, thousands of miles from their own homeland, determined to send every Japanese ship and sailor to the bottom of the ocean, and attacking every heavily fortified island that the Japanese had placed in their path. In the aerial action in the skies over Leyte, Commander David McCampbell, Air Group Commander aboard the aircraft carrier Essex, in his Mincy II Grumman F6-F5, along with somewhere between one and six other pilots, depending on which account you read, attacked a formation of 60 Japanese aircraft that were headed for the 3rd Fleet, seven planes against 60. They were able to break up the formation with McCampbell shooting down nine of the attacking planes. And he returned alive, able to land on his last drop of fuel. Luck was with him that day. He was awarded the Medal of Honor for that action and similar actions in the Philippine Sea the following June. He ended the war as the U.S. Navy's leading ace in World War II with 34 kills. On the morning of October 25th, 7 a.m., Center Force, consisting of 23 ships, one of which was the huge battleship Yamoto, which had been recently pounded by Admiral Halsey's attack carrier planes and presumably turned back from the San Bernardino Straits, but unknown to Halsey, it was about to reappear. Halsey, at the same time, had received intelligence that there was a carrier battleship task force off Cape Engano, and had a decision to make. He was relatively sure that the center force was out of action, and this new news indicated that a Japanese carrier was up for grabs, and the carriers are the heart of any fleet. Halsey made up his mind to go after the carrier force, leaving Taffy 3 to guard the North Leyte Gulf and the coast of Samar, the direct route the Japanese needed to take to attack the Americans at Leyte. And it was exactly at that time, daybreak of the 25th, that the still-powerful Japanese center force, unseen by American spotter planes or subs, slipped through the San Bernardino Strait and into the Philippine Sea, headed toward Leyte Gulf. It steamed along the coast of Samar directly for Johnston's little task unit, and beyond them, the American invasion beachhead at Leyte, hoping to destroy amphibious shipping and American troops on shore. One of the pilots flying patrol after dawn alert that morning did spot them and reported the approach of Japanese center force, steaming straight for Taffy 3, 
were four battleships, including the Yamato, eight cruisers, two light and six heavy, and eleven destroyers. Lieutenant Robert C. Hagen, Johnston's gunnery officer, later reported, We felt like little David without a slingshot. And no wonder, the Yamato itself outweighed the combined weight of every ship in Taffy 3. I have to be on the 48 watch that day, that morning. And uh, during the course of the night, I had the earphones on and there was a contact with the bridge. Now, they, uh, they kept reporting, which I don't think many people know the stories I heard so far. Uh, we had messages, unidentified ships 100 miles out, and then it went 80 miles out to 60. They were out of sight, these ships. And the crack of dawn, when scout planes went on, uh, let's see, within, uh, Brooks was the pilot of plane. And we all thought it was Halsey's fleet. The unidentified ships happened to be the Jap fleet. As soon as the, uh, we made our torpedo attack, we were ordered, the small ships, were ordered to attack the Japanese fleet. Well, our skipper could have just bailed out and headed south with the carriers, but he was a Cherokee Indian and had something to prove, and he did. We attacked along with the other ships, and we, his idea was we'd diversify the fire that was coming from the Japanese fleet into, so they wouldn't synchronize on, on single targets. When that Japanese fleet appeared on the horizon, the outnumbered and outgunned American Carrier Task Force faced a dilemma. They were the only thing standing now between Leyte Gulf and the rescue of the Philippines and a huge Japanese fleet capable of doing extreme damage to the American landing party. Their most important task was to protect their light carriers. They were not an attack force, and they were vastly outgunned. Taffy 3 with the USS Johnston was the northernmost task force, and therefore the closest to the fast-approaching Japanese fleet. No orders were incoming. The Japanese battleships were approaching fast, and they had twice the range with their 18-inch guns. Japanese at 15 miles could fire and hit their targets with good accuracy. And they were spotted, 15 miles out and coming fast. Not much time for decision-making. Admiral Sprague, upon hearing that the Japanese fleet had been spotted, immediately ordered all his carrier planes into the air. No time for loading armament, and to attack, which they did. Their attack delayed the Japanese attack fleet, but it didn't stop it. They knocked out one cruiser, but the battleships were huge and fast, practically impervious to the American planes the Sprague had at his disposal. You can compare it to a bear being attacked by a swarm of bees. The Japanese fleet, after the planes had to turn back to refuel, continued on their course toward Leyte Gulf and toward Taffy 3. Taffy 3 had turned south back toward Leyte in an effort to protect their carriers from harm. Between the fleeing U.S. task force and the oncoming fleet, the USS Johnston was zigzagging in front of the Japanese fleet, laying out a smokescreen over a 2,500-yard front to conceal the carriers from the enemy gunners. Even as we began laying smoke, related one survivor, the Japanese started lobbing shells at us, and Johnston had to zigzag between the splashes. 
We were the first destroyer to make smoke, the first to start firing, and the first to launch a torpedo attack. For the first 20 minutes, Johnston could not return fire as the enemy cruisers and battleships' heavy guns outranged the Johnston's 5-inch guns. They were getting fired at, but couldn't fire back. Commander Evans, having laid down the smokescreen, sized up the situation, and never hesitating, ordered sharp rudder right, turned his bow northward, and charged through the smokescreen to attack the enemy. In less than a minute, the Japanese officers watching from Admiral Kurita's flagship saw a single American destroyer break through the cloud of oily smoke that had a moment ago marked the path of American retreat, headed full speed directly toward them. Not waiting for orders, Commander Evans had broke formation and went on the offensive by ordering Johnston to speed directly toward the enemy. First in his line of sight, a line of seven destroyers. After them, one light and three heavy cruisers, and then the four battleships. To the east appeared three other cruisers and several destroyers. Johnson's five-inch guns opened up on a Japanese cruiser, hitting her top deck, and got their attention, as well as that of another Japanese cruiser, which sent an eight-inch shell that narrowly missed the Johnson, splashing red dye upon the face of the Johnson's gunnery officer, Lieutenant Robert Hagen. He mopped the dye from his eyes, remarking, in mock surprise, Looks like somebody's mad at us. The Johnston then fired on the heavy cruiser Kumano, the next nearest ship, and scored several damaging hits. During her five-minute sprint in torpedo range, Johnston fired over 200 rounds at the enemy, then under the direction of torpedo officer Lieutenant Jack K. Bechtel, made her torpedo attack. Commander Evans ordered fire torpedoes, and she got off all 10 torpedoes, then returned to retire behind a heavy smoke screen. When she came out of the smoke a minute later, the Kumano could be seen burning furiously from a torpedo hit. Her bow had been blown completely off by one of the torpedoes, and she was forced to withdraw. She sank soon afterwards. Sprague had received the report on the ship's radio, and at 7.16 a.m., he was immediately inspired to order small boys attack, meaning he was ordering his remaining destroyers to abandon the carriers and jump into the fray. Within 10 minutes, the Hole, the Herman, and the Samuel B. Roberts were in the fight. Around this time, Johnston took three 14-inch shell hits from Congo, followed closely by three six, followed closely by three six-inch shells, either from the light cruiser or the Yamato, which hit the bridge. One survivor described it, it was a puppy being smacked by a truck. The hits resulted in a loss of power to the three five-inch guns in the after part of the ship and rendered our gyro compass useless. Uh, at General Quarters here at Battle Station, I was the helmsman in the emergency steering room, which under some circumstances was never used. But as we finished our torpedo run, in which we disabled a Japanese cruiser, uh, we were hit with, they said, three heavy guns and three lighter uh, weapons. And our speed was knocked down to 19 knots. At that time, 
control of the rudder was in my hands because the connections to the bridge were severed. I could get, uh, I got word from them, hard right, hard left, for the rest of the time. But uh, other than that, uh, I, we had no d duties. And, and the bridge was wiped out, and many of the people in the bridge were killed at that time. Uh, uh, this time, we were just being hit regularly many times by armor-piercing projectiles which would pass completely through the ship without exploding. Uh, this lasted for quite a while and then, then we got the word uh, that uh, the captain was going because he, the communications was cut off to the bridge and the captain was going to control the ship from the fantail, the farthest stern part of the ship. He would stand over a hatch and yell down, or have his talker yell down, changes of course. And that's what we did for the next hour or so. And uh, then more hits took, took place, and our power was knocked off to the after steering. At that time, they sent crews of usually nine or six at a time, and they would turn the pumps and I would swing the rudder around to where it would be hard right, and they would pump the hydraulic uh, pumps to uh, get the rudder to turn. And this was a miserable situation, but it was the best we could do. This lasted for another maybe hour, and uh, then we got the word to abandon the ship. A low-lying squall came up, and Johnston ducked into it for a few minutes of rapid repairs and salvage work. The bridge was abandoned, and Commander Evans, who had lost two fingers on his left hand, went to the aft steering column to con the ship. At 7.50 a.m., Admiral Sprague ordered his destroyers to make a torpedo attack, but Johnston had already shot her complement. With one engine now, she couldn't keep up with the others. Commander Evans shouted over all the noise, ordering the ship to go in with the other destroyers and fire what armaments they had remaining. And they did blasting away at everything in sight with their five-inch guns. Meanwhile, narrowly missing the Herman by 10 feet. By now, there was so much smoke in the wild melee that Evans had to order not to fire unless they were certain of the target. At 8.20, Justin sighted a Congo-class battleship only 7,000 yards off the port beam, emerging through the smoke. The Johnston opened fire, scoring multiple hits on the superstructure of the much larger ship. The return fire from the battleship missed clearly, at least one advantage to being small, combined with speed, which by now, they had lost. Johnston soon observed the escort carrier Gambier Bay under fire from an enemy cruiser, and engaged that cruiser in an effort to draw her fire away from the carrier. Johnston scored four hits on the heavy cruiser, then broke off as the Japanese destroyer squadron was seen closing rapidly on the American escort carriers. The Johnston engaged the lead ship until it quit, then the second ship, until the remaining enemy units broke off to get out of effective gun range before launching torpedoes, all of which missed. And all of this on one engine. Then, Johnston's luck ran out. She came under heavy fire from multiple enemy ships, and right when it was most needed, the damaged remaining engine quit, leaving her dead in the water. <laughs> 
Sometime into the battle, a Japanese battleship, Congo, in revenge, fired two rounds from her main cannons. One round punched through the thin side armor of Johnston and cut a hole through the engine room. The enemy ships closed in for an easy kill now, pouring fire into the crippled destroyer, which was still firing. Johnston took a hit that knocked out one forward gun and damaged another, and her bridge was rendered untenable by fires and explosions, resulting from a hit in her 40mm ready ammunition locker. Evans, who had shifted his command to Johnston's fantail, was yelling orders to an open hatch to men who were now turning her rudder by hand. At one of her batteries, a crewman kept calling, More shells! More shells! Still, the destroyer battled to keep the Japanese destroyers and cruisers from reaching the five surviving American carriers. Said one survivor, We were now in a position where all the gallantry and guts in the world couldn't save us. But we figured that help for the carrier must be on the way, and every minute's delay might count. By 9.30, we were going dead in the water. Even the Japanese couldn't miss us. They made a sort of running semicircle around our ship, shooting at us like a bunch of Indians attacking a prairie schooner. Our lone engine and fire room was knocked out. We lost all power, and even the indomitable skipper knew we were finished. At 9.45, he gave the saddest order a captain can give. Abandon ship. At 10.10, Johnston rolled over and began to sink. The Japanese destroyer Yukikaze came up to a thousand yards and pumped the final shot into her to make sure she went down. The survivor saw the Japanese captain salute her as she went down, considering her an honorable enemy. That was the end of Johnston. The battle, however, was still raging, and the ships were spread out by miles through clouds of smoke and rain squalls. American pilots arrived and began dive-bombing and torpedoing Japanese ships, while the damaged but still fighting Hull and Herman went after Admiral Kurita's flagship, the 80,000-ton Yamato. The Yamato had already set fire to the U.S. carrier Gambier Bay, her mission being to take out the American carriers and thus free the skies from those pesky American planes, and then hit Leyte and the American landing force. The fight was still on for the largely undamaged Yamato, but the Hole and the Herman still had torpedoes, and they were closing from both sides straight into the Yamato's huge deck guns, which were firing at them as they closed. The Yamato was big, but it was also fast, and as fast as the American destroyers could get in position and fire, she was able to swerve and avoid them. But the two destroyers had a purpose in mind, to keep her headed north out of the smoke where American planes could hit her without having to dodge the guns of the rest of the Japanese fleet. The hole was hit 40 times by the Yamato's guns and on fire now. Her deck gunners pouring lead into the Yamato even as the hole turned over and sank with only 86 of her 253 men surviving. What had started as a bad situation for Taffy 3 at 7 a.m. was now becoming a rout for the Japanese two hours later as American carrier-based planes started doing some serious damage. Crewmen from the destroyer escort, Samuel B. Roberts, still fighting, spotted Evans at the fantail, asking, Isn't that their captain? Waving to them with what they did not realize was his only good hand. The Samuel B. Roberts had hit three cruisers and was going for a battleship when the Yamato 
Nagato and Haruna all turned their guns on her, tearing her to pieces, while gunner's mate Paul Carr was last seen dying at his battery from several shrapnel wounds and asking for someone to help him load his last shell so he could fire one last shot at the Yamato. Ninety minutes later, the Samuel B. Roberts, on fire, her entire deck littered with dead men and torn to ribbons, sank, taking with her 250 brave fighting men to the bottom of the ocean. At that point, the miracle happened. The Japanese battle fleet, badly wounded, and thinking they were up against a much larger force, turned tail and headed north, away from the Philippines. And neither that fleet, nor any other Japanese fleet, was ever a major attacking force again in the Pacific. Through the courageous actions of the commanders and crews of Taffy Three, the tide had forever turned in the Pacific in World War II. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. From Johnston's complement of 327 officers and men, only 141 were saved. Of the 186 men lost, about 50 were killed by enemy action, 45 died later on rafts from wounds, and 92 men, including Commander Evans, got off before she sank, but were never seen again. The men who had survived the destruction of their ships and were now in the water were hoping for a quick rescue, but it never came. They drifted on the water, the hot sun scorching their heads, with no water for three days, while sharks picked them off one by one. An order had come down to all ships in the area that they were not allowed to pick up survivors because Japanese subs were prowling that area, waiting to attack them. One of the most heartless orders the U.S. Navy had ever issued, and as a result, many of the men died of drowning, of dehydration, of untended wounds, and shark attacks. Well, it's something you learn to listen to. When that occurred, they, they took off, and I was kind of in charge of after steering them, so I had to wait till they left. And I wasn't terribly sure that we were going to sit. It was all kind of, kind of like uh, you were dreaming it. You didn't really think you were going to sink, but you thought you'd better listen to it. When I got to the deck, through my escape hatch, escape hatch I would uh, see that a lot of them had already gone overside. There were a few people working on a life raft, trying to disengage it. And I thought, well, this is no good. We had, you could see the ships that were shooting at us. They were very close now. And so I dove off the stern of the ship. And by myself, I was swimming along. And it seemed like the shells would burst all around me, but none you know, directly at me. After about an hour of this, uh, of swimming, I came across two older men whose opinion I trusted. And I said, well, we shouldn't we 
look for a group to swim to. And so we're all together and they said, no, we're too big a target, the Japanese will shoot at us. Well, that was fine by them. They had life jackets. I didn't. So I took off again right after a Japanese destroyer went right by us within 30 feet. And they could have, you know, shot at us. They didn't. They didn't do that at all. It was very surprising to us. Anyway, uh, I started swimming by myself. I could hear and see everyone's wanted to bob up and wave and see a life raft with a number of people on it. And I thought, well, there'll be a bigger uh, target to see when our ships come to save us. So I swam on and I've come across a young kid. Now, he was probably older than I, but he looked to be about 12. He terribly burned, skin hanging down off his face. He was screaming about every second breath with a scream. So I started towing him, hopefully, to get him to the life raft. And when you are pulling a person in a life jacket, you don't make much room, you know, you don't move. You just paddle away and you don't get anywhere. So I told him, I said, I'll go ahead and see if I can get something for your pain. And uh, because I, I can't do this. And so he they understood me and so I left him. I swam to a life raft that had some officers and uh, about 30 people total. And I told the officer in the life raft, I said, I need some morphine. And they said, okay, fine. And they dug in and they came out with a syringe of morphine. And uh, I said, well, I have to swim back. Well, everybody kind of looked the other way. So I, I, thought, I thought it was up to me to swim back. But a fellow I met in the service school, quartermaster school, said, you can't go back there, John, you don't have a life jacket. So he said, I'll do it. So he swam back, good thing he did, because I would never have been heard of again if I had done it. And uh, he administered the morphine to the guy, and the fellow later died, and Neil Deathlips, and he, uh, he survived. A very, very interesting uh, story his was. He was in the water longer than anybody else, and he actually was washed up on the Philippine shore. But anyway, long story to, to cut short. Uh, in, in the life raft, about 10 o'clock at night, one, one of the seamen died, and I got a life jacket, so now I was equipped. I thought of it myself as being all set for anything. But uh, let's see, it must have been about 12, 1, 2 o'clock. The first shark attacked and ripped the back out of it. Uh, a fellow that was known as the ship's barber. He was a machinist, but he was a ship's barber. They had about three or four of them that kind of did that extra duty, a little extra pocket money. Uh, that scared Dickens out of all of us. Uh, then another person was bitten. Then the third person was right next to me within a foot or two. We were both hanging on to a 4x4 shoring timber, which is about 8 foot long. 
I had my left arm, I can still remember that, draped over the 4x4, four four, and he had his right arm draped over. Never saw a shark. Now, there's others that'll say they saw him and all that, but I never saw a shark. I'd see a swirl of water, and somebody scream, and that was it. It was later discovered that the Japanese had lost over 10,000 sailors in the Leyte Gulf conflict, and the Americans had lost about one-tenth of that. Sailors and pilots combined. It is to those American servicemen that we owe our deepest appreciation. Too many Americans today do not appreciate how precious our freedom is, and how we got it, and who gave it to us. From the American Revolution onward, through conflict after conflict, with foreign powers whose sole objective it was, and is, to conquer free countries and take from them their power and their freedom. There are many people in and outside of America who like to find fault with our country. But when you think about it, no country in the world has done more or sacrificed more fighting men to promote the cause of freedom and liberty than the United States. The USS Johnston's supreme courage and daring in the Battle of Samar won her the Presidential Unit Citation as a unit of Taffy Three. Lieutenant Commander Ernest Evans was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. The skipper was a fighting man from the soles of his broad feet to the ends of his straight black hair. He was an Oklahoman and proud of the Indian blood he had in him. Said one of the men, We called him, though not to his face, the chief. The Johnston was a fighting ship, but he was the heart and soul of her. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Also, we've been busy here at 1001 Stories Network, and our ratings have done well. All thanks to you for subscribing to and sharing our shows with others. Right now, we need Apple reviews and subscriptions, so if you've been a listener for a while, or if you're new, send us a nice review and subscribe to our show. It's free. I read our reviews at the end of most 1001 Heroes episodes. We maintain a Facebook page called at facebook.com forward slash 1001 Heroes, and you'll see the Join Our Group button just below and to the right of our 1001 Heroes banner. One of those fans of our show that you'll find in the group is Dewey Oxberger, who occasionally sends me good ideas for shows. And Dewey, this idea was yours, so thank you very much. As I was researching a number of different internet articles, I called out some comments that applied to the Battle of Samar. The first one, Ernest Evans was my grandfather. And I believe that, I hope I get the name right, Zach Boyd. And this one. This destroyer went up against opponents she was never designed to face, and against all odds, she came out on top. She saved hundreds of lives, but gave up her own. She was a wolf in sheep's clothing, so much more than what she appeared to be. She moved lightning fast and shot straight and true. Her guns never held their fire, and her men never stood down, even in the face of overwhelming enemy force. She is the definition of true honor and courage. She still inspires all of us, and she will never be forgotten. Godspeed, USS Johnston, a hero to the very end. And this one. I'm not even American, and I think this was one of the greatest acts of military heroism during the entire Second World War. Charging a superior force inspiring an entire fleet to stand and fight, taking out two cruisers twice your size and with four times the firepower and still fighting on even whilst you sink. Even though he never got the rank, 
Evans was an admiral that day. And this one. Johnston fought like hell that day, as did all of Taffy Three. The nerve it must have took to charge battleships and battle cruisers like that is unfathomable. There need to be more crews like Johnston's and more captains like Ernest Evans. As an American and someone who loves history, the crews of the Johnston, Samuel B. Roberts, and the rest of that group have my utmost and sincerest respect. Because of them, the war ended that much sooner. Had they failed, the entire attack on Leyte could have failed and drawn out the war for months more. Little side note, there is a memorial for Taffy Three in San Diego, just off the port side of the USS Midway. Been there myself. Very humbling. Another one. My father was on the Johnston. His name was Jim Gorick. He survived. And this one. The old saying goes, it's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. There were several giants that day. The Japanese just didn't know it. And this one. My father was on DD-533. After doing the black smoke and engaging, steaming full boilers directly into approaching Japanese heavy capital ships, 533 only lasted little more than 30 minutes before going down. My dad said most of the guy's biggest fears were oil fires on the water, which he managed to avoid. He, his station, was below deck during the fight, trying to keep electric patched together to operate equipment. Coming up on deck on orders to abandon ship, he did the quick last cigarette detail for several shipmates, which is when he was hit by massive shrapnel, nearly blowing off his right arm and leaving 27 holes in his body. He managed to stay alive at sea for three days before being rescued and moved to a hospital ship. And this one. Spartans, every last one of them. The American way. 